Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's Word. You may be seated. We continue our summer series with yet another list uh, from the Bible. I don't know how many of you got excited when I announced a few weeks ago that we're going to be looking at all the different lists that are mentioned in Scripture. (laughs) So uh, there are some definitely fun ones that you know, right? There are some that you meditated on and benefited greatly, and then there are some that are difficult to get through, and so we'll hopefully have a good balance of both kinds this summer. But today we're looking at a list from 1 Corinthians that I just read, which is really a list, it's a membership roster of the Corinthian congregation. This is what it is. The Apostle Paul writing to this particular church at Corinth, this Greek city, he describes who belongs in the church. That's that's what this list is about. These are the people who are part of the Corinthian church. I think it's important for us to understand this list and apply it to our own church. So I'd like to address it under three headings, very simple today. One, let's look at the reality of sin. Two, let's look at the power of grace. And then finally, three, let's look at the implications for the church and really for our church. So the reality of sin, the power of grace, and the implications for our church. The apostle says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, many of us don't know. Many don't want to know and live in willful denial of the reality of sin. Now, of course, it's impossible to deny that something is wrong with us, right? It's impossible to look around and, and, and say, oh, things are just great. You know, everything is working exactly as it's supposed to. No, most of our conversations during the day are about our problems, right? It could be little problems, could be major national global problems, but in general, you live your life minute by minute addressing problems. You're trying to solve issues. You're trying to make things better. Addiction, violence, injustice, abuse, corruption, poverty are constant companion of every civilization. There's, there's not been a civilization, there's not been a culture or a society that has been free from that. It's just, it's just impossible. We all know that. And yet we struggle to understand what the cause of all these problems is. What is the cause of all our troubles? Is it education, lack of education, or maybe bad education, not enough education? Is it economics? Is it really all about money? Who has enough money? Who takes people's money? Is it religion? We need more religion, some people say. Others say we need less religion. In fact, religion is the cause of all our problems. Is it leadership? Do we just need better politicians, better leaders, better pastors, better parents? Now, all these theories are common. And if you just listen to the news or you listen to politicians, you will find that, that they all offer a version of one of these theories, saying that what we need to fix our problems is we need to have a better educational system, or we need a better, more just economic system, or we need something else. And yet, these theories have been proven untrue and unreliable and ineffective in practice. If you look at the human history, or even if you just look at the news of the day, you will find that none of these things actually accomplish the things that we hope they would. That doesn't mean that these things don't make life marginally better, of course. Better education is better than worse education, of course. It's, it's better to have justice in society and, and economic justice at that than not, of course. But none of those things that have been pursued 
by the way, have been pursued at full force at different times in human history. None of those things actually worked out to the effect of having our society fixed and really being rid of these problems. In fact, we can easily cite many examples of these theories having been disproven. One of my favorite examples is the 1924 kidnapping and murder of 14-year-old Bobby Franks by Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Most of you know about the case. It was at the time, it was, it was announced to be the crime of the century. These two young, well-to-do, brilliant, well-educated, from good families, people of good standing, these two men kidnapped and brutally murdered a 14-year-old boy. Now, why? Why? I mean, they had everything that we hope everybody would have to prevent any sort of dysfunction from happening. They had it. And yet, they committed this incredible crime. Now, by their own admission, they said there was no reason for them to kidnap or kill this boy, except that they wanted to simply prove that they were so smart, they were so intelligent, they were so brilliant, they were so bright, that they could get away with it. The only reason for Leopold and Loeb to do what they did was to prove themselves to be superior to everybody else. How do you explain that? I mean, this is not an isolated case, by the way. But how do you explain that? What categories can we use to explain things like that happening again and again and again all around us? The Bible's teaching on sin explains Leopold and Loeb. The Bible's teaching on sin actually explains all sorts of human dysfunction. In my opinion, sin is the only plausible explanation of the human condition. Why do we keep doing what we do? Why do we keep thinking the way we think? Why do we keep feeling the way we feel? Why do we keep treating others the way we treat others? It's because we are sinful, Scripture tells us. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that the unrighteous, this class of people, which, by the way, all of us are included in, that humanity, the unrighteous humanity, has no shot at an ideal society? That we actually can't get what we want, what we long for? The kingdom of God is a world without suffering, without evil, without injustice, without murder of Bobby Franks, without addiction. That's the kingdom of God. That's what it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a society, it's a culture, it's a world, it's a creation that is free from all these things we're trying to get away from. And all of us want it. And Scripture says, but the unrighteous cannot inherit it. The unrighteous, can, we can't get it. We all want it, but we can't get it. This world, this ideal is inaccessible to us because we are unrighteous. And here's where the Bible is more honest and more helpful than any political theory of, or social punditry. Please appreciate the honesty of the Bible. It places the fundamental problem inside the person by defining us people as unrighteous. Now, all the theories I've mentioned place all our problems outside of ourselves. But the Bible actually pushes it right in and says the problem is not what you do as much as we say that some things are wrong to do. It's not so much what you think. It's not so much how you feel. It actually is about who you are. It's about what you are. It's about the kind of person you are and we all are. We are the unrighteous. What is unrighteousness? I'm using unrighteousness and sin sort of interchangeably, but let me define what it is. Lest you leave church and say, all he did is just use some weird religious words and nobody understands what he's talking about. So let me help us here. Unrighteousness is simply not being right. Unrighteousness or sin is simply not being right. It's not right 
about how we live. It's not being right about what we think. It's not being right about treating others or, most importantly, not being right with God. Sin is the state of not being right, of being in the wrong, of being on the wrong side of things. And it's a universal condition. All humanity, each person belonging to the human race, is unrighteous, according to the Bible. And that is why things are not right in our world. It's actually very simple to understand. Now, it's not easy to accept because you have to accept guilt and responsibility. And you have to realize that you are accountable to someone other than yourself. But it is very simple to understand that the world isn't right because I am not right. Things are wrong around me because I am wrong. There's something wrong with me. This world cannot be fixed as long as we remain unrighteous. Now, the Bible is honest about it. I I don't want to go to the Bible and find something superficial, find something temporarily uplifting, and walk away unchanged. It's like going to the doctor's, And the doctor tells you, well, you know, you could use a little more exercise, maybe a better diet, and doesn't tell you you have cancer. What kind of doctor is it? Well, the same with Scripture. You don't want to go to Scripture and get a a bunch of inspirational quotes and put it on your Instagram and put it on your wall and get maybe a couple of wise comments and a couple of rules to keep and then walk away all the while not knowing or not accepting that You have something inside of you that is eating you alive and will kill you. And there's no shot to make anything significantly, substantially better unless this issue of sin and unrighteousness is addressed. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, you cannot remain a sinner and still expect to live in a world without sin. Now, please listen to me because it sounds absurd, and yet most of us deeply hold it to be true. Here's the absurd statement. You cannot be a sinner and expect to be in a world without sin. Logically, it makes no sense. But in our hearts, it makes perfect sense, which in itself is evidence that something isn't right with us. We are not processing reality the way we should be. How can a person who is not right with God expect to be welcomed in his kingdom? And yet, how many people today believe that everything is going to turn out fine? We're all going to be fine. That God will eventually, he will accept us and and there'll be no consequences for our sin. Most people believe, at least in my experience, that they deserve the kingdom of God. They deserve that world without sin, that ideal world without suffering and regret and addiction and violence. They deserve that world, but they want that world without God. So I want to be in the kingdom of God. I want to be one of those people who will inherit the kingdom, but I don't want to deal with God, whose kingdom it is. I mean, it's, it's an absurd idea. It makes no sense except that we, mostly all of us, actually believe it. There was a big conference in London last week focused on rebuilding Ukraine after the war. Lots of representatives of various nations, lots of businesses, lots of experts of saying, you know, once the war is over, what can we do to rebuild the country? What needs to be changed? How can we battle some of these these problems that Ukraine has had in the past. It was a big conference, lots of great ideas, lots of pledges of help. Overall, very positive. And let's believe them that it's going to happen exactly as they say. Okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll be an optimist for this one, okay? Let's believe that the world will come around Ukraine, the war will be over, and, and they will rebuild it, and, and Ukraine will be a prosperous, just society where people can can live under the rule of law and, and, and treat each other well and everything will be wonderful. That's the, that's the ideal. Okay. Who will belong in that country? Who should inherit that kingdom is the question, right? 
So who should be part of that renewed, prosperous, just society? Should it be collaborators who are now helping Russian soldiers kidnap Ukrainian children? Should it be people who are telling on their neighbors so they could be arrested and tortured in the occupied territories? Should they count on belonging to this new Ukraine that will be rebuilt? Of course not. I mean, it's ridiculous to think that those who oppose Ukraine now and work hard against destroying that future should somehow count on being included in that future. And yet, think about us. How many of us live our lives against God, despising His law, caring nothing about what He thinks, how He feels, what He demands of us, how much He loves us, and yet, in the back of our mind, we think, yeah, but when He comes in glory, when this world is renewed, I'll be there. I'll be there. I'm, I'm included in that. I will be part of that kingdom. Why would you think that? Why would anybody think that opposing God now and living your life exactly against Him, exactly against Him, how would that change when He finally deals with all sin, eliminates all sin, and establish his new kingdom. Why would you think you would be there? Why would you think you should be there? What is your hope? What is your confidence to expect that kind of outcome? If you are unrighteous now, if you are not right with God, with others in the world, if you are not right, why would you think you will want to be you will be accepted in the kingdom where everything is right. You don't even want it now. Do you see the absurdity of the human condition? And, and really underlying that feeling, underlying that, that hope, that, uh, that wish, that in the end everything will be fine, we'll be in his kingdom. What's underlying all that is our lack of understanding of the reality of sin. All of that stems from our underestimation of what sin is, from our neglect of the importance of sin. So Paul makes the statement, he says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he explains in very practical terms what unrighteousness looks like. So let me read the list. I'll make a few comments. It's pretty understandable. I don't think we need to do much work to understand what he means. But let me make a few comments to show you what it looks like, and then we'll get to the positive news after that, okay? Paul says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's not an exhaustive list, and most lists in Scripture aren't. It's illustrative. It's, it gives you different ways to understand what he's talking about. It gives you great examples. And though it's not an exhaustive list, it is intentionally balanced. It has something for everyone. If I asked you to stand up right now, I won't, okay? I won't embarrass you. <laughs> Although if I did, we'd be all embarrassed together. But if I asked you to stand up, if you find a connection with one or more of the things on this list, I don't think anybody would be able to stay seated right? I mean, he sort, of, he sort of handles most things and pretty specific in some and broad in others. There's individual and corporate sin. There's secret and public sin. There's word and deed. It's, it, it, it's a good list to compare our own righteousness to. It doesn't let anyone think of themselves as righteous. So let's look through it. Sexual immorality, adultery, and homosexuality. I'm going to put them together. The Bible doesn't consider sexuality as something that can be governed by the person themselves. You notice that the Bible never puts sexuality just in your own private understanding. Oh no, it's governed just like anything else by God, who made us sexual beings. No matter what the world tells us, there is right, or we can say righteous, sexual activity. It's placed in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, and so Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. The world will tell you, it's okay. There's lots of ways to do it. But Paul says, don't be deceived. All of that is governed by God. And some things are right, 
and some things are not right. You can be righteous or you can be unrighteous in your expression of sexuality. I mean, notice how specific he is condemning homosexuality. Again, the world tells us, well, there's just another way. It's okay. It's okay. We're all different, and we can kind of express ourselves in different ways. But that's not what Scripture says. And Scripture is very clear. Men who practice homosexuality, the active and passive members of that couple, which is what the Greek says, it's not about violence. It's not about rape. This is not what this passage is about. It's about the activity. It's about homosexual sexual relationships. And Scripture says it's, it's not right. This, this is not what God designed us to do. This is not how God has made us and what God has given us as a gift. So is adultery. Why is adultery wrong? Well, it's, it's breaking promises. It's breaking relationships that God has, God has ordained. Breaking a marriage commitment is wrong, regardless of our rationalizations. Regardless of how we define love, it's still wrong to do that. It's not right. So how can a sexually unrighteous person expect their life to resemble the kingdom of God? How can by pursuing sin, and I'm staying in just this one realm, but we'll get to others, don't worry. How can pursuing sin in that realm, in the realm of sexual activity, why does it make you think that it will have no effect on anything else? Why does it make you think that somehow we can still have the ideal world while we are clearly pursuing things that are not right? It is absurd to normalize adultery or to normalize homosexuality and expect at the same time healthy families, stable society, and happy children. Friends, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. And yet this is what we're doing today. We're saying we're going to pursue all these things. And what we're going to expect is the kingdom of God. We're going to expect this society free from struggle, free from sin, free from regret, free from dysfunction. It doesn't work. Now many of us, even Christians, we sometimes feel like the law of God these things of right and wrong and righteousness and unrighteousness, God gives us to, to restrict us, to somehow to limit our joy. And that is not true. These laws, these rules that God gives us are actually governing rules. And they govern us towards joy. They actually define what's right because what we really need is we need to live rightly in God's world. And because God has created this world, and God has created everything, including sexuality, we will do well, obey Him, and do what He says, because that is the path to joy. This is... I'm going to be waiting for you to clap on the other sins, okay? So I'm just going <laughs> to warn you. Because in, in this, is, this list is not limited to one view or the other. You know, this is not a political list. You have to take it all. You have to take it all. So let's keep going. Thieves and the greedy. Thieves and the greedy describe our unrighteousness in relation to possessions. It's not right in God's economy to want what is not yours and to get what belongs to someone else. It's not right. And you can't build a society if you do that. It destroys relationships. It destroys security. Swindlers, which is another word used for it's a similar idea, but it highlights an element of aggression or violence in acquiring possessions. It can mean robbery or extortion. Again, that's not right. It's not right to go and take something by force, something that belongs to someone else. Drunkards. Drunkards. Shows our unrighteousness in abusing God's good gifts. So instead of enjoying something that God gives us, wine in particular, but I think we can look at being a drunkard in many other ways, other substances, but certainly it relates to alcohol. Instead of enjoying wine, instead of enjoying alcohol that is a gift to us, we put ourselves under its influence and we are controlled by it and now it has power over us. We flipped it. This is not right. That's not how God designed it. God doesn't want us to be enslaved by His good gifts. This verse is about addiction, which is being used by something which has been given for our use by God. 
God gives us something to use, and instead we are used by it. That creates addiction. Now, how can we expect to function well in the world and, and hope for the kingdom of God to happen right here if we are actually turning things upside down and we're being used by something we're supposed to use and we're placing things at a level of importance that should never be there, be it food or alcohol or anything else? Next one is revilers. I'm expecting some applause on this one, okay, because that hits home, right? Revilers addresses the sins of the tongue. It has to do with slander and gossip and verbal abuse and being divisive. That's not right. Of course it's not right. Why would you want to divide your community? Why would you want to say something that isn't true about someone else? Why would you slander somebody and then put them in a situation where now other people think of them in a bad light? The Bible does not want us to be deceived about the reality of sin, any sin, including sins that we've sort of made them, you know, it's okay, it's tolerable, you know, well, he's a gossip, but, you know, who isn't? No, that's, it's not right. It's not right to revile. It's not right to slander. Sin runs deep. It's not just about sexuality, even though it is about that, included in that, of course. It's not just about economics and possessions, but of course it is. It's not just about what we think. It's, a, it's not just about what we feel. It's not just, it's all of it. It's permeated our whole life. That is why Paul can say we are unrighteous. We're unrighteous not because we do these things as much as it's become part of us. Sin is part of us. We can't help but do these things. We can't help but think this way. We can't help but treat others this way. Now, I left one out, idolaters. I left it to the end because that gives us a window into sort of the, the cause underneath the cause, right? Idolatry is false worship. It's worshiping something or someone who is not God or worshiping God in the wrong way. So in this way, addiction is idolatry. In this way, theft is idolatry because you, you think of something higher than it should be. You put it at the, at the position of God, and so you pursue Him. You submit your life to it. In fact, all these things have to do with idolatry. And this is why Scripture again and again reminds us that if your relationship with God is not right, you can't have right relationships with other people, and you can't have right relationships with the world around you, with things that God has given you. Our unrightness with God leads to our unrightness in all other areas of life. Not being right with God means never being able to be right with or in His world. Never being able to be right with His other creatures. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you know that? Do you know the reality of sin? Do you know that you are accountable to God, whether you believe it or not? Do you know that you have no place in God's kingdom unless you get out of the unrighteousness, unless you somehow become righteous? Psalm 24 reinforces the same point, and you will see it throughout the Scriptures. And if you read the Bible, you will see these ideas coming up again and again and again because the Bible is honest and the Bible is helpful. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the, the hill of the Lord? Who, who shall be in God's presence? Who's allowed to be in God's kingdom? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who, who can be in a place where God is and God rules? Who can be there? Who's welcome there? And here's the answer. Who has clean hands? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It's almost the same list, isn't it? It's a person who's in the right relationship with God, who worships God, who doesn't lift his soul up to other gods, who, do, who does the right things with his, his hands, who has a pure heart, the motives and the thoughts and the feelings are right, who doesn't say the wrong things. That's who belongs in God's kingdom. So if we have that, if we listen and we say, okay, I get the reality of sin, 
man, we, we are left in a grim state, right? I mean, if that's all there is, I mean, what hope is there? But our passage, fortunately, doesn't end here. Look at verse 11. After this long list of the unrighteous, Paul says in verse 11, and such were, <laughs> such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You used to be that. All of us used to be unrighteous. And then something happened. And obviously God did something because this is all passive voice. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit of our God, something that God did transferred us from that state of unrighteousness and makes us now welcome in God's kingdom. The Bible is not only honest about the reality of sin. The Bible is also hopeful and offers us the real possibility of change. Now, you could write this verse and say, don't you know the unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom of God and we can never change and nothing can ever happen so we have no place in God's kingdom forever? You could say that and be right except for the gospel of Christ. Except for what Jesus has done for us, what God has done for us. Now the Corinthian church was full of people, just like any church by the way, who were thieves and practicing homosexuals and idolaters and verbal abusers and so on. But they were changed. Something happened to them. Something happened to them so that Paul can say, this is a list of people in the Corinthian church. And yet, we add something to that because you were that. Such were some of you, but now you are no longer that because you've been changed. I mean, there's hardly a more encouraging phrase in all of Scripture than, and such were some of you. <laughs> there's, there are lots of encouraging pieces, right, in Scripture, lots of encouraging verses, but this has got to be at the top of that list. Yes, we were unrighteous, but we are no longer unrighteous. Now, here's my testimony, and I'm being honest, and I'm picking these things purposefully. I was a thief. And I was sexually immoral. And I was an idolater. And I was a reviler. And I was a drunkard. Those are my specific sins. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not hiding stuff from you. This is who I was. Those are the things I did. Those are the things I felt. Those are the things I thought and plotted. That's me. I was unrighteous. Now, why, why would I have hoped to be in God's kingdom? being as I was. But by God's grace, I was changed. Here is the hope. Here's the hope in the gospel. Sin is real, and it cuts us off from God and everything good He wants for us. And yet, God Himself has decided to deal with our sin and make us right with Him. That's the gospel. Sin is real. We are not in any way diminishing the presence and the power of sin. You can't. But at the same time, we're proclaiming that there is hope and there's a real possibility of change. Not everybody who is unrighteous today will remain unrighteous. Now, how does this change happen? Well, Paul tells us you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, I agree with some commentators, and John Calvin in particular, that these three words, washed, sanctified, and justified, all refer to the same action of God. They're just all different descriptions of the one event that happens, and that event is conversion. That event is regeneration, that inner change that happens, God's work of grace in your life. God takes a sinner, and He makes them righteous. He washes them. Now, we can see 
probably hints of baptism here, maybe. But it's certainly not about the physical washing, is it? It's about something deep, a cleansing of all dirt of sin. And the prophet Isaiah's metaphor, though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God washes us clean. God sanctifies us. Sanctification means basically taking something that is unholy and making it holy. Taking something that is unrighteous and making it righteous. Holy things belong to God. And so God takes something that doesn't belong to Him by our own rebellion, and then He makes it His own. He claims us for Himself. God justifies us, meaning that He removes our guilt before Him. He acquits us of our crimes, and He declares us free from the debt to Him. He frees us from that. And he says, you were unrighteous, meaning you were not right with me, but now you are right with me. As far as I am concerned, God says, you are right with me. We are okay. You are not in the wrong anymore. You're not on the wrong side of things anymore. You are with me. You are in harmony with me now. Now, all that happens in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is so specific. He's using precise language to tell us exactly how it happened, lest we assume wrong things. He says that it happens in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In another place in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who, made no, who knew no sin. God made Jesus to be sin, even though Jesus was sinless, so that in him and Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So God takes Jesus, who is righteous. He makes him unrighteous so that we could be righteous like he is. Christ entered our kingdom so we can enter his. Because he was made dirty, we can be made clean. Because he was punished as a sinner, we can be forgiven. Because he was treated as he was not right, we can be made right. And it's all by grace. Jesus did it. Jesus did it all for us. The godly died for the ungodly. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. So we can be changed. Jesus changed for us, so now he can change us. And this wonderful thing that Jesus did is now applied to us. Any person who is a legitimate Christian, is a real Christian, has been transformed by the Spirit of God. It's not only that God did something in Christ somewhere out there. No, now that has to be taken into our hearts. It It needs to be applied. So the Holy Spirit takes it, and He actually changes and He makes us new creatures. God Himself applies this to us. The Spirit of God changes us. He gives us the righteousness of Christ, and He makes us righteous, both in position, we're declared righteous, and in practice. The Holy Spirit is actually making us more and more righteous because we belong in His kingdom, and only the righteous people belong in His kingdom, so He will make us righteous. The same grace that makes us right with God also makes us right in the way we live and think and talk. And one of the ways you know that you have been made right is by the way you now live. You cannot say, I was a thief, If you are still a thief, you can't say that. But the dynamic of this passage is clear. Such were some of you. You were that, but now you've been changed, and you're no longer that. Your identity has changed. You are not a thief at your core. You're not a thief anymore. You've been changed. You cannot say, well, I used to do that, if you are still doing it. Becoming a Christian is a fundamental change in identity. And what Paul does in all his letters, he calls us to live according to that new identity. He keeps calling us to be consistent with who God already made us to be. We are new creatures, so live a new life. Live in a new way. And we belong in another kingdom. So now, in this kingdom, live as if you are a citizen of another kingdom, because you are. Now, quick illustration here. The great 4th century African bishop, Augustine, 
got converted in his, I think, mid to late 30s, lived a life of, of tremendous sexual license until he got converted, had a very difficult time letting that go. In fact, didn't want to get converted even though he understood the gospel because he didn't want to let it go. But the Lord changed him. He used to be sexually promiscuous, and then God changed him, and he became different. And after his conversion, several years after, the story is told about him that he was walking down a street in the city, and there was a young woman that saw him, a woman that he used to spend time with, they used to party together, and the woman saw him, and she said, hey, Augustine. And Augustine just kind of kept walking, so she caught up with him and said, Augustine, this is I. And Augustine said, yeah, but this is not I. <laughs> you see, I'm different. Does it mean he takes no responsibility for what happened before? Of course not. Augustine talks freely about his life before Christ, and he struggles after Christ. But he's not that person anymore. He's a new creature in Christ. Something happens when we come to Jesus. So do you know the power of grace? You may know the reality of sin, and you may be crushed by it, or you may live your life in ignorance of it or willful denial of it, but it's not enough to know about sin. You need to know about grace. You need to experience yourself the power of that transformation so that you, with the Corinthians, can say, yeah, we used to be that. Many of us used to be that, but we are washed, sanctified, justified in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, in conclusion, I know I have a few minutes, only a few minutes left. I'm going to make some implications for the church. As we consider what this passage means to us as a church, as a body, how do we live based on these dual realities of sin and grace? And I want to emphasize to you Paul's words, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Twice he says, he says, don't you know? And then he says, don't be deceived. And the implication is that we can very well be deceived. We can very well live in the wrong way and understand things in the wrong way. So what can we be deceived about? We can be deceived about the reality of sin, and we can be deceived about the power of grace. We can neither, you know, we should not, we can be, but we should not be naive about sin, nor should we be skeptical about grace. We cannot underestimate neither sin nor grace. This gospel balance is the key to governing church life is knowing the reality of sin and knowing the power of grace. So how can we underestimate sin? Well, we can just assume that church is a safe place where nothing bad can ever happen. It's full of good people, right? Plenty of people think that. You're underestimating sin. You are underestimating the reality and the presence and the power of sin. Sin is more pervasive it is more sticky, it is more potent than that. We only looked at a short passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But if you read the whole book, you will find there was a lot of sin in that church. That people were struggling with sin. They were struggling to live out their new identities. And there were people there who probably were not Christians and were just using the church for their own purposes. You have this one particular issue in chapter 5. So just a chapter before our chapter, right? So if you read it in context, you will see how this message in chapter 6 comes on the heels of chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Paul chastises the church for tolerating sexual immorality. Now, he, now he told them in 6, you, you used to be that. You used to be sexually immoral, but you still have sexual immorality in the church. And it says, you got to correct it. You can't have both. You can't claim that you have been changed by grace and at the same time tolerate sexual immorality in the church. A member of the church was sleeping with his stepmother in chapter 5. What should the church do? According to Paul's guidance, the church should remove that man from the church. This practice is called church discipline. Unrepentant sinners cannot be accepted as members of the church. Because it cannot be said by them with any degree of honesty that such were some of you, when such are some of you. A church that does not practice church discipline and does not call its own people, each other, all of us, 
to repentance tragically underestimates the reality of sin. We can be naive. We can be too optimistic. We can be too flippant. We can be too hopeful. And that would be deception. Paul would say, don't be deceived. Sin is very strong. It's very present. Be careful not to underestimate sin. Now, how can we underestimate grace? Well, we can assume that certain types of sinners are not welcome in the church. That would be an underestimation of grace. So, for example, we may not share the gospel with someone whom we have a hard time imagining becoming a Christian. You may not go to somebody thinking that, I don't know, I mean, I guess I, maybe I could say something, but I really don't see it. I, just, I don't see that person coming to Christ. In fact, there are whole communities that we just don't even touch because we just can't even imagine. But let me tell you that grace is not grace unless it's scandalous, unless it is surprising, unless it does things you cannot imagine. Only then you actually believe in grace. And most of us know it in our own hearts because we've been changed, and we know how surprising that transformation is. But we should also look at other people and say, yeah, anybody could be saved. Any, God can get anybody. No matter what they believe now or how they live. Uh, one of our elders, Clifton, says that when we go invite people to church and sometimes we go door, door to door, sometimes we do flyering and invite people to different events of the church, none of us comes with a list, right? And says, well, we'd like to invite you to our worship service tomorrow Unless, let me, let me consult my list, you know, because if, if you are on my list, if you have a particular sin, particular history, then you can't come. None of us do that. And we don't do that because we believe in the power of grace. And we need to be consistent with that, knowing that anybody who comes here should be welcome to hear the gospel. Anybody. Anybody. Because if we don't welcome people, we underestimate the power of grace. Now, let me give you an example. Can a person on the sex offender registry be part of our church? Don't answer out loud, but answer in your heart, okay? Can a person on the sex offender registry be a member of our church? The power of grace says yes. The power of grace clearly says yes. Because there is no type of sin out of which God cannot redeem a person. Now, why would we exclude someone who needs community, who needs the gospel from our church? The gospel compels us to include them. It compels us to include them. There is a passage in Acts 9 where Ananias, this Christian, gets a vision from God, and God says, go baptize Saul. <laughs> And Ananias says, I know Saul. I'm not going to baptize him. What is he saying? He's saying, I have a list, right? And I would share the gospel with anybody except for Saul because he's a persecutor of the church. He's done so much harm to the church. I'm not talking to him. And the Lord convinces him that he is actually doing a work in Saul's life. And so Ananias is transformed by that experience, and he goes and actually baptizes Saul. What is happening? It, all of us are dealing with that. All of us have that list. And the Lord's grace has to come and destroy that list. And for us to say anybody is welcome in God's church if they've been changed by the power of God's grace. But should we assume that there's no longer any danger from this person to others around them? Should we disregard the possibility that this person, this person in the sex offender registry, has not been truly changed by the gospel, or that they might even be using the gospel to gain access to the church. Should we just be flippant about it, naive? Anybody who says they've been changed have been changed? Should we say that? No. The gospel compels us to take sin seriously. You, do you see how it's both and? There is a welcome, indiscriminate welcome because of the power of grace, but there's also a clear understanding that sin is powerful and it's deceptive and it, we could be tricked by sin. So what do we do? In our church, all sinners are welcome. All kinds of sinners are welcome. 
We want everyone to hear the gospel of grace. We believe in the power of grace to change anybody. But we are not naive about the power of sin. So when, for example, a sex offender says that they were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, we welcome them as a new creation in Christ. And at the same time, we set up a strict protection policy. We want to make sure this person is not allowed to be near children, unsupervised, that there's oversight and accountability. Why? Because we believe both in the power of grace and the reality of sin. Both and. We're going to take both things seriously. And by the way, this is not at all limited to sex offenders. It applies to all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things that we do and exercise wisdom in, knowing that sin is powerful, and yet knowing that grace is powerful too. Sin is much more varied than a particular sins we have on our list. But out of our belief that grace is real, we welcome all sorts of people, and we expect real change. Now, this is what it looks like to root church life in the gospel itself. And we see this gospel at the Lord's table. On the one hand, we see the reality of sin. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was spilled. Why? This is how bad it is. Sin is, 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 is incredibly destructive, so destructive that it destroyed the Son of God. And yet, what else do we see here? We see the power of grace. Today, around these tables, you will see all kinds of sinners that have been made right with God. There's going to be sexually immoral people. There's going to be homosexuals. There's going to be thieves. There's going to be revilers all around these tables because they have been changed by the grace of God. And that's the church. That is actually what the church is. Sinners saved and transformed by the grace of God. Jesus himself says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom.